You're listening to the B&H Photography Podcast. For over 40 years, B&H has been the professional source for photography, video, audio, and more. For your favorite gear, news, and reviews, visit us at bnh.com or download the BH app to your iPhone or Android device. Now here's your host, Alan Whites. Greetings and welcome to the BH Photography Podcast. Today's topic is night photography. We're going to start our show by defining night photography. What is it and why are so many people willing to stay out all night long in the freezing cold to take night photographs? From there, we're going to go into gear. We're going to discuss cameras, lenses, and other accessories. And if everybody behaves themselves, we're going to finalize the show by having Gabe give us his secret recipe for taking successful Star Trail photographs. And while you're listening, feel free to give us your opinions on Twitter at BHPhotoVideo with the hashtag BHPhotoPodcast. Our guests are quite qualified to comment on the subject. Todd Vorenkamp is a writer and night photographer, and Gabriel Biederman is a night shooter, as well as the author of Night Photography from Snapshots to Great Shots. Welcome, Gabe. Let me throw the first question at you. What is nighttime photography? Night photography opens up the doors to more creativity. Um, think of really playing with time and what we can do with that. Now, we could obviously do that with and during the day with strong filters, neutral density filters. Um, probably, you know, they have now 16 stop neutral density filters. So you can go to Times Square during the middle of the day and get a uh, probably a eight or 10 second exposure at noon. And that's kind of cool. Who's got that shot? Um, but night photography right off the bat without the help of these uh, filters, you're look, talking about longer exposures. And if there's movement, what happens? And the, the surprise, the element of surprise. I've been doing night photography for over 15 years. And, and I just continue to go back to it because that element of surprise is, is always brings a smile to my face. I have a good idea of what I want to achieve and I'll, and I can often get there, but there's a lot of, uh, Always new new explorations. I guess it's just as much fun as, as stopping something at an eight thousandth of a second, and then you could also be watching something that takes place over, say, eight minutes or Definitely. several hours. And, and these things you can't see; these longer exposures, it's hard to visualize with your eyes. It's you have to tap into your mind's eye, really. But talking about that, that's funny. I was just I was in Iceland earlier this year, and I went to a, tons of waterfalls there, right? Right. Um, and I went there, and of course, I'm like I'm like going up there thinking, okay. What do I got to get? What's the sweet spot? It's, is it two seconds, four seconds, eight seconds where, you know, you get a little bit of detail in that water um, instead of it just, you know, whiting out. But then this, my, my friend next to me was like, oh, no, no, no. You want to capture that at like eight thousand eight thousandth of a second. You want to really capture every little bit. And I was like, I would have never thought about it. And I tried it and I tried actually doing that and panning with it. And I got some really cool stuff. I, I was really, I was like, wow. So it's always... I always enjoy shooting with friends, you know, and going out there because we can bounce these ideas off of each other. And, you know, sometimes we get we have our visions and it's a lot of times we're trying to get there at first. But if you shoot with friends, bouncing that, those ideas off of each other are, can open up more doors. I think uh, night, the word night or the term night photography can be a little bit of a misnomer. Because I think it's more accurate to say low light photography. Mm -hmm. As Gabe mentioned, like you can do some of these techniques in broad daylight with the right equipment. In the aviation world, nighttime is the moment of sunset to the moment of sunrise. And in the maritime world, it's half an hour before sunset and half an hour after sunrise. That's when you have to have your navigation lights on. 
So, so we're, we're, we're pirates at night. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> you, like, you can do night photography at night, obviously, but you can also do it in a dark place. Like, if you go to Grand Central Terminal, if it's not one of those days where the sun comes through the windows, it's pretty dark in there, mm-hmm. and you're going to need, quote-unquote, night photography techniques to get your images there. That's true. So. Well, you know, you talk about night photography. It sounds like everything is really perfectly dark out there. The truth of the matter is you go out – on a clear night where there's a full moon and let your eyes acclimate and you could be in the middle of the darkest field and there's a whole world out there that you see. True. Yeah. So yeah. It, in some ways, it's not much different from daytime photography. It's just that the exposures are longer and the way the light falls is different. Plus, you have all these little white things that start showing up in the sky, <laughs> which you don't see during the day. That's true. And You're- you also pick up movements. So there's a whole different dynamic to it. But in many ways, they're kind of similar too. They are. They you just are. need a better tripod. Your your eyes are actually yeah, yeah, yeah you, you definitely do need a, a better tripod a cable release also helps but uh, I was gonna say your eyes are actually very adept at seeing at night because for a long time there wasn't artificial light and right. our eyes had to work in the dark and they still do that fairly well we just have artificial lighting surrounding us almost all the time so in when the sun goes down if you're in a place where there's not a lot of artificial light your eyes will adapt to that darkness and you'll be able to see. Not quite as well as you see during the day, but you'll be able to see well. The camera also sees well, but it has to see that same stuff over a longer period of time because it's sensitive to daylight lighting. It also might see it better than we do because during the day, our eyes, our our, our central point of focus, the center of our vision is actually quite good. But at night, it's not because it's the outer portion of our vision field of view that has the light sensitivity. The center is actually less sensitive. Right. Our eyes see more monochrome at night because of the yes. the difference in the rods and the cones. Cameras see color 24-7. So when you do night photography, that's one of the things. You get to see colors that your eyes don't necessarily ever get to witness. And a perfect example of that is the, the northern lights. Right. Right? A lot of times – and the northern lights can, can vary between being very vivid and you can see them. Or if they're not as vivid, they'll look like to the eyes milky clouds. You know, and I've learned to recognize them because they're obviously different shapes than the clouds we're used to. Uh, but if you point a camera up to those milky clouds, they'll change from that white to a light green. So it's very interesting to see how much, especially with that color range, um, the camera can see at night. Have you have you actually been stumbled upon taking pictures at night, say up in the northern uh, mm-hmm. latitudes? And all of a sudden you realize you're picking up the northern lights, but you didn't know it was happening at the, when you were actually shooting well, them? Well, definitely. The, you- the first few days, for sure, before I had experienced that, right? And, and it blew my mind. And then I got, okay, all right, okay. Then I just started really pointing my camera to learn uh, how to see these. And then after a few days, I definitely got accustomed to it. And, you know, I've, I've shone out northern lights for, let's say, a week's worth of time. So I'm, you know, I'm not super experienced in it, but I've, you know... I've definitely have played with it and uh, and had a lot of fun with it. And it's, you know, the key with that is, again, how to see them, mm-hmm. right? Those exposures aren't that long. They're quite short, but it also depends on how— I was how just going to ask you because they do move. There's they a do shimmering move. to them. I've, I've, I've actually slept through them three times. <laughs> uh, I've never actually seen them. Yeah, right. That's my claim to fame. But I know that there's a certain movement. like They, they described it like sort of like a large curtain. Yeah. So if you know that that's going on, uh, how do you change your, your, your technical approach? Because well, now you're not going in for really long exposure. You're trying to capture something very specific. Yes, and so, get the definition of it. So it's just like the same idea is almost like with capturing clouds. 
Do we want to capture their shape or do we want to capture an essence of their movement, right? So my general rule of thumb when I say what to shoot clouds at is usually no more than four minutes because after that, most clouds will smear, right? You know, it really depends how much the wind is, right? Is it blowing that much or is it gentle? There's, I've seen some clouds just hang, you know, for several minutes at a time. So you have to look at your conditions. And then with, with the auroras, you have to look at how bright they are. Right. And that'll definitely define how bright and how low they are. They get really close to the earth, you know. Um, and uh, so I was finding that I was shooting around uh, and no, no, usually not longer than eight seconds, somewhere between two and eight seconds to capture it at a moderate ISO, something like 800 to 1600. Often I could bring that down. And I was shooting like one or two stops down. So somewhere between 2.8 and an F4. That was sort of the range I was at and I would adjust, but that really the key to shooting the auroras yeah. is to, you know, is to actually take your head away from the camera and actually enjoy them a little bit too, uh, right? We can get caught up in it. And, and, and the tip that I'll tell you is to make sure that you are continually shooting, put that shutter on a sort of a continuous mode right. because they're, cha- they're always changing, right? So just put it on a continuous mode, get that, get the composition right, you know, for a while but then also just look up there. Maybe you'll even lay down and look up there and enjoy it. Because, enjoy the show. Because, you know, the pictures can capture so much of it, but our memories are even more. When you're shooting at night, one of the, one of the realities that you have to deal with, which you don't have to deal with during the day, is the fact that everything you're photographing that's not on Earth is moving, or rather there is movement in the sky because the Earth is rotating. Yep. What's your window of time if you want to freeze the stars, if you want to see specific, very well-defined pinpoints of light as stars as opposed to getting star trails? What's your cutoff point for catching sharpness? Well, night photographers around the world have uh, gathered together, and at their at their big symposium, they lay down some rules. <laughs> right, Todd? Right? You right. know the rule, yeah, know right? The rule. <laughs> it's the 500 rule, right, oh, which yeah. is, oh, which is right. defined, yeah. which you, you look at um, – <laughs> You have, to, you have to look at the lens, right? Because yeah. each lens will zoom in to a certain degree into the, into the sky. So you, you use the 500 rule and you look at your full frame focal length. So if you're using APS-C size sensor, you know, first off, do the multiplication. 1.5, 1.6, Exactly, get it to full frame. Using. So we want to divide that full frame focal length into 500. So for a 50 millimeter lens, that would be 10. And that 10 is your seconds. You have 10 seconds now before stars start to trail. You know, there is a little bit of a leeway on that. And some people, there's there's a movement that some people want to go to the 400 rule because it used to be a 600 rule. But 500 <laughs> seems to be this. I, I, I went a little bit of research. I know it was a 600 and then it was disputed by the people who said yes, no, yes, 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 yes. The people on the West Coast, especially, they really didn't like the 600 rule. <laughs> But so 50 millimeter lens not doesn't give you a lot of time. So that means you're going to have to go higher ISOs or obviously a faster aperture, which a lot of 50 millimeter lenses have. One of my, I, I like my sort of, if I'm doing star photography, my favorite focal length is somewhere between like 18 and 21 millimeter. Cause those on are going to, on a full frame camera, those will get you somewhere between 21, 20 seconds to 30 seconds. So that that's and that gives you now I can kind of lower my ISO down to at least 3200, you know maybe even 1600, so I can get a cleaner image, um, and I and then depending upon the lens, you know 
you know, do I need to, cause some lenses do need to be stopped down, right. you know, for this. Um, I use a Zeiss 21 2.8. They're generally wide open at 2.8. It's pretty good. There are going to be listeners out there that are already getting breaking out in cold sweats, listening to all this math. <laughs> I know as soon as you start throwing a lot of numbers at yep. me, I get kind of shy once and you, I start rocking in my seat. Once you if, add if, latitude adjustment to the rule of 500, that's when it gets you really- You just pushed yep. all the math fears <laughs> yeah, exactly, right over yeah, right yeah. now. <laughs> there, there, is there a basic, for somebody who's a, a beginner, is there a basic uh, exposure system you can give us? A base ISO, a base shutter speed, an app, an f-stop that would get you in the ballpark and give you a place to start from. Is there a starting point or is it there are too many variables on this? I mean, it really all depends. Uh, what? Let me qualify yep. that. A customer who's listening, they have an APS-C DSLR yep. and they have the 18 to 55 millimeter kit lens. It's a four, five, three, five to five, six, something like that. Maybe not optimum, but for a lot of people, that's their base camera and they want to get right. a taste of it. Yep. What would you recommend? So I would recommend it probably starting out at 6400 ISO. Okay. For about 15 seconds, wide open, three five, and then you get to see right after. And then you'll get to is. see it right there. You know, do review it, and then here's the key: is when we review our images at night, everything moves down, moves slower, right? When we're doing night photography, I always, you know, talk to my students and friends that like, listen, we're going to take our time. We're probably going to only come away, and this is specifically for star photography because Todd talked about how much night photography does encompass and low light and city stuff and all that stuff. But specifically for, for star photography, we're going to move a lot slower because we're going to really take our time and, 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 and do it. Think about it. It's shooting like medium format or large format. We're going to take our time. We're really going to focus on that composition, mm -hmm. right? And we're really going to make just micro movements to get, make sure everything is perfect. And then we're going to take probably five to 10 test shots before we settle on what is going to be that final shot. So oftentimes when I do star or rural night photography, I'm only coming away with like maybe five setups, eight setups, maybe tops. And I'm happy. So I, you could probably get away with a one gig card <laughs> doing that, you know? So those high, you know, uh, capacity cards maybe aren't needed, you know, but, uh, but whatever I shoot with this. Basically, <laughs> you, you have to go out with the attitude that I'm shooting with a four by five or an eight by ten camera. This is not bang, bang, bang. This is Correct. very slow, very methodical. There, yep. Nothing's happening fast, which mm -hmm. is kind of neat. Because yeah. it gives you a chance to watch this. Guy. I, tell you, I was gonna there are instances, there's scenarios, there's environments where you can shoot that DSLR on auto and come away with something really nice. If there's enough ambient light, if the if the the lens and the metering is working well for you, but other times you have to work for it. That's so. correct. That's correct. Mo yeah. I would say actually right. Finding those dark dark skies, especially in North America, is very difficult. Right. You know, so most people's scenarios are gonna there's gonna be some ambient light kicking in, and now with a lot of these cameras and almost every camera really doing a pretty good job at definitely 3200 ISO and oftentimes 6400 ISO, they could be in. Auto or shutter speed priority. I would actually, I would kind of think of going to if they if they're afraid of manual. I shoot in manual, but if you really think about night photography, low light photography, and and maybe you, whether you have a tripod or not, and especially if you don't, you actually got to think shutter speed priority because how how much can I hold this still, you know? And good a good point. a good a good tip for that if you don't have a tripod is um, putting your camera in burst rate. Because if we want to go below 60th of a second, um, especially uh, you put it into burst rate. And I found that even with the bigger S D DSLRs, 
I can go down to a quarter second, put that thing at burst rate, let it fire off. I get 10 shots. The first two or three are not sharp because I am not a good tripod and my hand is triggering the camera. So there's movement there. But by the third, exactly. (laughs) By the third or fourth (laughs) shot. (laughs) Good. Two points. Exactly. (laughs) I would imagine the uh, newer cameras with, with higher ISO sensitivities with less noise have been a really good boon for night photography, making it that much simpler. We are at an all-time high at night photography. So many people are doing it right now. I mean, it used to be this arcane aspect of photography. And to be honest, you know, and and, and I remember those days because I shot it when it was film. I still shoot a little bit of film actually at night, but but back in those days, no one shared their locations. You needed massive math theorems to figure it out because you had all reciprocity failure and all this sort of stuff like that. And it was sort of, you had to be in the click. You had to be in this little, there was 10 people who knew about it. So you had to be friends with them or friends of friends with them. And you know? starting off, I imagine you had to leave knowing that you were most likely skunked because you're not going to know your results for another few days. Yeah, well, that was the trickiest part <laughs> so. is, is really you had to be a good note taker. Yes. Right. You really needed to be not only just all your your camera information, but weather conditions and what time of the, you know, what, what phase of the moon or what, what all these things are, are going on. So, um, now this world we live in, we're sharing more than ever. The technology is there. There's more workshops and and videos and all these ways that we can kind of get, get that information that, and it's, and it's, it's really easier because you can see it right away and make those adjustments on the fly. I make mistakes still. You know, no. and I can make rookie mistakes. No, don't tell, uh, don't tell us this. I don't. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> let me ask you a question. Sure. What makes a good night photograph for you? What are the parameters? What are the, what are the subjects that you would look for? What are the kind of things that you'd hit on? I my master's thesis was industrial abandoned landscapes at night, and where I was shooting, there was still a fair amount of ambient light, but not a lot. I really, personally, I like the interaction between artificial lighting and the environment. Mm -hmm. Like if I look at a, you can walk down the street and you look at a wall that has a sconce light on it or, you know, outdoor lighting fixture. And during the day, it's just a wall with a light on it. But at night, there can be really interesting texture and shadow cast by that lamp. And that's what my eye, that's what I really enjoy capturing. Uh, I like doing star trails. I like doing landscape stuff outdoors, but it's the industrial, the interaction between man-made light and the night is what I what draws me a lot. Do so. you ever fill in light, bring in extra lighting, flashlights, headlights, torches, flamethrowers, anything of that sort? Not in gen- not generally. I've done some light painting, usually at workshops. I think that's what, fun what, and it's good. So for those of you, for, for the listeners paint, out there yeah. who are not familiar, what light painting? Define it for us. Light painting is when you're you're doing a long exposure and you add your own artificial lighting, usually in the form of a flashlight. You and it's painting is actually a very accurate term because you're moving the flashlight through the scene and highlighting a certain section or a certain object that's in the frame. And gotcha. I mean, you actually use like a painter's stroke, yeah. so, literally. It's kind of interesting. But yeah. A lot of people are, I mean, it's actually light painting is like a huge thing. I, it's not my norm. I, I've done it and I enjoy it, but it's, I'd rather somebody put a light bulb somewhere and that's gonna, <laughs> that does the light painting for me. By the way, for the record, I believe the first photograph using light painting, uh, Pablo Picasso was in it, if I'm not well, mistaken. Well, that right? was one of the first really amazing images that proved light writing, actually. Yeah, you know, that's actually that, what, yes, correct, and, yeah. And, uh, 
And that, and that just blew everyone's mind before. People had introduced artificial light to the to scenes before that, but this was the first sort of creative, really creative. I, th- I think it was um, Mealy, Mealy, M-I-L-I. Yes. Who, who was the photographer, and he just told Picasso, he said, listen, create whatever you want. Here's a blank canvas in the dark. Create whatever you want, then I'm going to pop a flash on, on you at the end to freeze you. So when you're done... Tell me, and I'll and and freeze, and I'll pop the flash. So that's how we can see him. And then he had to work out, and this was, was tricky at the time that the that light wouldn't overpower the pen light. Yes, that Picasso was using, the, it was which it was essentially just a white drawing, a white yeah. line drawing that mm-hmm. he did. It was a. It's Life Magazine was I think published those. Commission, and it, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. If you go to the Life Magazine website today, you can find those images. It's really really impressive. Great stuff. When we come back, camera choices. We hope you're enjoying this edition of the B&H Photography Podcast. Send us a tweet at BH Photo Video, hashtag BH Photo Podcast. Let's talk about cameras and, and formats. What works, what doesn't. Aside from the fact that you have better detail and probably lowered noise at the higher ISOs, is there a big advantage to using a full frame uh, uh, mirrorless or DSLR or is APS-C or four-thirds or point-and-shoots even good enough? And I, just to qualify that, I know that I've gotten some amazing shots handheld in the middle of dark fields with a point-and-shoot where I could yep. count the stars in the frame, and I'm, it's amazing. Yep. So that said. I would, I would say it's the more expensive camera is the best. <laughs> <laughs> you get what you pay for. <laughs> I think no, the, the I, lines are thinner than ever before. Yeah. I mean, that, it used to be you needed a full frame camera um but the ape the technology the sensor technology is so good right now especially the backlit i mean cmos sensors i, I imagine that's been a boon yeah. i i mean digital used to all be APS-C, and those worked really well for mm-hmm. a, a long time there's an there's a noise advantage an iso noise advantage with full frame mm-hmm. but you shoot APS-C usually and so do you, well, and so do I. You know, like so. <laughs> so we and, you got two APS-C guys here. Yeah. Um, though I I, I, I try a lot of different cameras, and I'm yeah. sure you get to play with a lot as well. Everyone's um, but I, but that that line, unless it's sort of like a a higher mega mega megapixel <laughs> camera, <laughs> right? <laughs> that you get more detail, and thus you get more of a tonal range. Mm-hmm. You know, those those cameras can can definitely benefit, and those are generally full frame. I mean, the A7S is is definitely the winner here. You know, just that it can go well beyond. Um, most cameras are good up to 6,400 ISO. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. The A7S II, which is out now, um, that claims to go what, whatever, 10 or 15 stops above that. I, in my testings, I've, I like it three to five stops above, you know, 6,400. It's all, everyone, it's all subjective to our own likes and dislikes about it and where grain starts to really affect it. But, but, th- so that camera is, it's probably, you know, when I see a lot of night photographers, a lot of them have that in their in their bag. Um, but, and I used to be against point and shoots totally, but uh, I've been using a bunch of point and shoots lately, especially those one inch sensor yes. point and shoots. Yes. Those can do a real good job um, at A, the higher ISOs and and longer exposures. But the, the drawback with a lot, a lot of the point shoots is that they don't have a bulb feature. Okay, they don't have a general bulb feature, which you find in mirrorless and SLRs. Uh, bulb means that you can 
go beyond 30 seconds. Most cameras go up to 30 seconds and bulb means I trigger it and I can go as long as I want until the battery dies or I, I set it with a with an intervalometer or a remote, okay? Um, most any, of the point any, shoots, go, they limit it, they cap it at right. like two or three minutes. That was gonna be a question of mine. Yeah. Okay, so you have, what point shoots currently can you think of that do have that bulb feature? Okay. I mean, I've I tested think, the, the the RX series by Sony, and that's great, but that goes up to, I believe, three minutes. Okay. Um, I'd have to look at the the Canon GX, maybe some of their APS ones. I'd have to really look at that one, but I'm, I'm pretty sure, again, they, they generally cap them. My my guess is there's cameras that you can do that with using camera control through Wi-Fi. Possibly. I'm throwing that out there because I know that there's some very basic point-and-shoots that when you use Wi-Fi and control it from your phone, you have expanded options on how to control it. I would say, but the 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 takeaway is, if you're if you're thinking about buying a point and shoot, and you're thinking about night photography, manual control of aperture right. and shutter speed is the key. And if you can get up to thirty seconds, awesome. If there's a bulb, then that's even better. But yeah, I think one camera we we definitely need to mention uh, for night photography is the uh, Nikon D810A, which it's an astrophotography specific camera. I've been dying to get my hands on it. I really haven't tested it, but I've talked to a lot of people who have, and I've read all the specs. And the main thing is it's got a wider sort of color space, white balance, especially for astrophotography. So looking at the nebula, looking at Milky Way, looking really deep into different solar systems, it's handling those colors much richer and much more realistic um, than most other cameras out there. Digital cameras see infrared light but they, we put filters on them so the images look like what our eyes see because you don't want to have a wonky IR image from your point-and-shoot mm -hmm. or whatever. So the Nikon has uh, it has a different infrared filter, which mm -hmm. allows a certain wavelength of infrared light into the camera so your nebulas pop, yep. basically. Formats aside and camera brands aside, what doesn't work? If somebody was starting off with night photography, uh, and it could be star trails or just basic imaging, whatever, what should they not what should they stay away from? What cameras or equipment should they avoid? What are the no-fly zones? Your phone. Yeah. Your okay. Phone. I mean, you can use your phone because there's wonderful apps on it that we can kind of figure out a lot of these this math <laughs> and stuff like that. Yes. But, but trying to take a picture with that in low light, it's still not there. And maybe at the end of the year it will, we, you know, because that technology is going. They're getting better and better. I mean, like you can yeah. – I do handheld night stuff on my iPhone 5 all the time and it's better than the 4 and it's – right. You know, but it's getting there. But, but it's limited. It's, it's limited. limited. It's yeah. limited. It's low light, but not really, right. you know, some of the those longer when, when exposures. You're in a pinch. What about image stacking? I know uh, Olympus, I believe it is, has that, and there's some other companies that is also an advantage where you could, yes, do some yep. long time lapse stuff. You know, there more and more Photoshop is happening inside the camera, and a lot, especially the mirrorless cameras, are getting more creative with sort of the apps or with internal software that you can you can be more creative with. Sony has a star stacking app that you can put into their their uh, their cameras. Um, it's a pay for one, but you can add it to it. And then Olympus, right off the bat, um, their, their software, right? They have a few different ones, um, but Composite Bulb does an amazing job of A, you can preview it on the scene, on, on the back of the screen and know when, and it, basically it will not burn out your highlights. So that's a great, um, a great thing for a light painting because mm -hmm. you can see when you've done enough light painting it's and will continue to fill in the shadows until you want it to. So that's, 
you know, I've worked a little bit with it, um, and I want to work more because, boy, if you know, I'm sure other camera companies are going to pick it up. But that could be a real big game changer in the world. And if of I'm not mistaken, that technology also holds down the noise because you're dealing with multiple images, and the noise is basically yep. filtered out from fresher pixels. For lack yeah, of I would assume word. it's doing some sort of dark frame subtraction yep. on it that's yep. kind of eating up uh, that, that any noise in there. Are you touch okay. I was, I was going to talk when we talk about noise. We're talking about ISO, and, yep. and like the higher the ISO, the more digital noise you get. And right. high ISO is like the golden ring that camera companies are trying to get. I mean, Sony is like that. That's one of their advertising points is higher ISO. And night photographers embrace high ISO. I have to say, but if you're thinking about doing night photography, don't base your camera purchase on that. Depending on what kind of night photography you're going to do, if you're doing handheld photographs and a Williamsburg bar that has two <laughs> candles in it, yes, get a high high, high <laughs> ISO camera. But the photography that I do, it's tripod based. I'm not like the industrial stuff. I'm not really worried about star trails or pinpoint stars. So I was shooting. I usually shoot mostly at the native ISO at 200, and the, most cameras at 200 ISO are going to have very great noise performance. So you can get away with, you can do a lot of night photography at lower ISOs. Again, it depends on what you're doing. The other factor is the environmental. Like if you're out in the cold in the winter, very low noise. When I was shooting off the coast of Thailand on a ship, it was 90 degrees and super humid. And at 200 ISO at 30 second exposures, I was getting noise that made you think you were shooting mm -hmm. at much higher ISOs. Yeah. So Yeah. And a good way for people to understand that is think of your camera as a computer or a laptop. When we are working with our laptop on our lap and it starts to heat up, right, that processor is overheating and it's getting hot. Same thing happens with the camera. It overheats. And if you don't have a good or the latest processor in there that can help do that overtime work, because it seems like it's a Herculean effort to lift up that shutter and keep it open for a long time, <laughs> you know, and yeah. that and that really uh, makes that, that processor work overtime right. and create noise within it, yeah. amplified by heat. I was just shooting at 60 degrees, which I thought usually was safe, and I was still getting noise at 30 seconds. So yeah. um, right now it's the winter, so tis the season to get out and get longer exposures. Right. <laughs> now, you touched briefly on lenses earlier that wider angle are better. What, what If somebody was said they wanted to take one lens out in particular for, say, a full-frame camera, what would you recommend? What focal lengths are the best for just general Sure. Nighttime well, I'm going to go against what I said then. Okay, good. <laughs> okay, there we go. <laughs> and because, you know, I've, a wide angle are, I think, the, the the better choice for night sky photography. Because for me, um, in my my night shots, I want to include a lot of the night sky, but but I, often, well, I also want to include some sort of uh, landscape, too. Mm -hmm. So the wider, the better for me for doing that. Uh, however, for most of the general public, what's an easy lens for them to get is a 50 millimeter lens. They're inexpensive. They're anywhere from $100 to $300. So everyone can have that in their kit. And that's often the first lens I'll advise to people who just buy a kit lens because it gives you a fast kind of normal vision. Think of our eye, our eyes with sort of uh, with uh, barn doors on them so we can't see out the, to the periphery. And um, and you, again, all those lenses are fast and they're cheap. So so you can you can cut down in, in indoors and more of the common low light scenarios. Would it be recommendable for somebody, say, with the kit lens, an 18 to 55, which is usually a 3.5 to 5.6, somewhere in that range, 
would that be a reasonable lens to go out with? Or is that, I guess that would depend on the camera that you're having and the ISO sensitivity, a lot of variables. But sure. say with a, a camera made in the past year where there is good low light sensitivity, would a kit mm -hmm. lens suffice? It's not the end of the world, but you can, yeah. there's better options. Yep. Okay. So uh, you I can mean, get out there and get your feet yeah, wet. I would say like, I mean, that that applies to daytime photography too. That's a, those lenses are fine for a lot of what people want to do. But if you want to up good your, enough for government you, work, yeah. If you want to <laughs> up your game, you're going to want a larger aperture lens, uh, maybe a prime, and that's going to be better for your daytime stuff, taking pictures of the kids at the birthday parties, and it's going to be better for nighttime stuff too. And optically, but is most likely better as better, well. Yeah. And I often ask the audience, "What's your focal length?" How do you see the world? Right. Get a prime lens and that focal length. And there's a really easy way to figure that out. Uh, obviously, most of us get a zoom lens at, to begin with. So where are you stopping? And you can easily look at that in a lot of programs like Lightroom and Capture One and stuff like that. You can see in my zoom, I'm often stopping at 35. It would behoove look you at your favorite to pictures. Get to, to get, yeah. Look at your favorite pictures. Look at Is your there favorite a pictures theme? and what focal length what did focal you shoot them at? Yeah. That's so, a very good. You know, I often go up to photographers and I might never know, know them or anything. And my, my first question would be like, hi, how you doing? What's your focal length? <laughs> I like that. <laughs> what about camera supports? Okay, because again, there's a limit to how, yes, you can do a burst of images and actually get sharp pictures yep. at ridiculously low speeds. But what are the minimum requirements? What would you recommend people consider if they're buying a good light support for night imaging uh, tripods are often the same thing as the cameras like what you what you you get what you pay for you get what you pay for yeah that's <laughs> right. what i was looking for it's, <laughs> there's a balance between heft and portability the best tripods in the world are, are going to weigh 400 pounds but you can't carry them yeah <laughs> yeah you got a very stable shot with that because it's not going to move so the lighter you go, the more it's going to be subject to vibration and wind, but the less your back is going to hurt for right. carrying it out into the woods. Carbon fiber has advantages. Wood has advantages. Aluminum has advantages. It's, it kind of, it's more of a budgetary decision. What I do t tell people when they're shopping for tripods, though, is get the best one you can afford. Yeah, like don't definitely. skimp because if you buy a low-end, inexpensive tripod, Chances are you're not going to be happy with that. You're not going to want to take it with you after a while because it keeps failing you, and then you're going to buy another tripod. Yep. So save up a couple more paychecks, buy a nicer tripod, get a, a nice used one. The tri like the tripod's not going to break in half somewhere. If it's scratched and used, it's a tool. It, like it gets used. It's like a screwdriver. It's a brand new screwdriver is just as good as one that's been mm -hmm. turning screws for 20 years. You know, Something so, that just struck me also is that yeah. you don't need a tripod if you're doing night imaging. You don't need a tripod that's at your quote-unquote eye level. No. You could buy a lower, more compact, mm -hmm. heavier-duty tripod that's easy to carry if you're going out in the middle sure. of nowhere yeah. and is less susceptible to wind right. and is more stable and generally is more stable if you just – Again, just get something that's half as tall as you need. If you're not, especially if you have a tilt right. screen, you if can you're see doing what you're a sixteen-minute exposure off a tripod, you're not going to be looking through the camera for sixteen minutes, so you don't have to worry about being bent over for sixteen minutes. Like, very true. You know, yeah. very it's, true. You I set think it up and walk away. Important consideration, I think, for anyone buying a tripod is looking at your height and matching up a tripod that matches your height. Without the center column extended? Yes. You know, so that's, you know, center column is when we start to compromise a little bit. That's the last, so, the last ditch. Exactly. Right. right. So, so finding a tripod that measures up to you is the first, I think there's, you know, we have the budgetary considerations, but then what measures up to you and, and then also, right. How low can you go? 
Mm -hmm. right? Not every shot should be six foot above sea level. As long as it's not plastic, you generally have to spend about a, over a hundred dollars. So have that in mind. That's fair. You know, yeah. so That's you fair. can find good ones at over a hundred dollars. What about you know? ball heads, tripod heads? What's recommended? Would you prefer it? Uh, is a ball head good? Is, is tilt? I love uh, the ball head. Hand tilt? Okay. Yeah, the ball yeah. head is kind of the best of all worlds. I mean, if you're you can get geared heads if you have an unlimited budget. You can. That's get, also weight that mm, you're carrying around. Yeah, it's yeah. all. There's always compromises. The ball head is kind of like that's the, the the best performance for the weight for sure. the dollar. Some so. people like the the three way, the five head. These geared heads yeah. can give you a little bit more precision, mm -hmm. and it's more of that. Okay, let me think X Y Z. You know, yeah. um, whereas the ball head, you people do suffer from trying to get it level, right? It, it's lighter. We like it. Um, it's easier to use. Oftentimes. Um, but we do suffer because there's no leveling point, which one at, right after a, a ball head and a tripod, I like to buy a spirit level, a bubble level. And I put that on the hot show. I know a lot of cameras have a level a lot of cameras in the back, have that electronic but I level find that inside. not to be hundred percent accurate. It's a nice start, especially right. if I do get off access one way, then it can get all wonky. So I do like the, and they're, they're 20 bucks, right. you know, it's a simple little thing. I've got two of them, one in each bag, mm -hmm. you know, I always make sure I have one there. I think an L bracket too is a really, L brackets are a must, great thing. Cause you set up your tripod and you lock down your head and you want like, I want to try this vertically. You just roll the camera on the L bracket. You don't have to adjust the head anymore. You have to do move mm -hmm. anything. Good point. And you don't yeah. lose uh, the plates. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? I often exactly. have to bring five of those plates cause I often yeah. lose them. I would say, but the, Tripods in general, supports in general, save up a little more money, yep. buy something you like, buy something that's good because you will use it for years yep. and years and years. If you skimp and you get something just as a temporary stopgap, you're, you're going to pay more in the long that's run. That's good advice in general yeah. for anything you're looking at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, true. Okay, yep. I took tripods, Except lenses, things geez. you're going to be living with for a while. <laughs> so, geez. <laughs> 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 Any other gear that should be considered? One of my favorite apps, personally, for doing scouting and figuring out all sorts of things from, you know, how long to do a star uh, trail to where the Milky Way is going to be to when the sun is going to rise set at, at any location that I can plug in is Photo Pills. It's an expensive app. It's a $10 app, but it's worth every penny. It's good. There, there's some similar that mm -hmm. offer a lot of the features, but I like Photo Pills too. Yeah, I think all... Photo Pills has a lot, like combines three or four different apps into one and it's a great interface. It's, yeah. Cable yeah. release is the next one. We talked a little bit about Bulb. And how do I get? How do we take advantage of that bulb feature? Is you got to plug this cable into your camera, and, and these cables, these cable releases can be six or ten dollars, or they can go up to. I know there's some remotes. There's a remote by a company Promote that's like five hundred dollars. Yes, you know, and that's great for all this sort of time lapse, HDR, all that sort of stuff like that. That's more programmable, but usually, I believe it comes with a Hasselblad Stellar camera. That's why right. it's so expensive. Don't start that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll cut that out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. But you need you need you need these, and I always bring. I always have two or three as a backup, because um, some of them work with batteries. Some of them operate off the battery of the camera. It's usually AAA batteries, so I have some of those. But again, the benefit of now I can program with these ones that have an intervalometer, which usually start around $50. That's a key thing what you need for star stacking, um, as well as time lapse. Um, and then as well as just making making it easier for you. You could just program in, hey, I know I want this exposure to be two minutes, two seconds, or two hours. And you don't have to be, you know, sort of 
tending to the camera system the whole time. You can actually maybe go set up another rig. Or head into town and have a hot cup of coffee or and a sandwich. Exactly, you know? exactly. <laughs> there's also a lot of wireless remotes these days. Yep. And that's uh, there's definitely a, there's a battery um, consideration there. So the, wi the wired ones might be a little more reliable and yeah. easier to use, but... Uh, your phone can trigger your camera, mm -hmm. and which, whether the app from the camera or right. things like Trigger Trap or something like yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. So you don't need that wired release, that, um, or you do it through uh, Wi-Fi. You can control the exposure and all that stuff. So. One fast question for shooting in cold weather: How do you deal with batteries? Because a lot of batteries batteries are affected by cold. Yeah. So well, you any ideas more. about that? <laughs> yeah, buy, buy more, more batteries. <laughs> but I mean, you can't swap a battery in the middle of a long exposure. No, you can't. So you got to keep an eye on your battery levels for sure. And that's yeah. something, um, especially if you're doing the star stuff in rural photography where those exposures are longer. That's what drains the battery as well. It's it's you know it's 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 uh, really taking the energy from the processor and the batteries go quick and they're going to go yeah. quicker at in colder nights. So a good so, tip might be to keep your batteries in in your pocket, in uh, your pocket keep, them, to keep warm them warm until you're ready to get until up and ready. running. Yeah. Don't carry them an hour and a half out to the site and let them be okay. Right. Exactly. And sometimes you can swap out batteries and that one that was dead you put it in your pocket and it, and it can back. you revive a little exactly. one third of the life back into it. But yeah. again, um, I often go with three or four extra batteries. Don't ever go out on a night shot with like a half full battery thinking you're going to yeah you're, you're going to get far you're going to get yeah you're going to be like <laughs> you'll okay. get to that Williamsburg bar <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> next up Gabe's secret recipe for taking successful star trail photographs if you'd like to reach out to us with your questions or comments email us at podcast@bhphoto.com at what do you need for taking a perfect star trail photograph with soup to nuts? What do you need to get this picture? Stars. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Bottom line, you need stars. Lots of famous people. So, I mean, there's, some, there's been some good New York City two-star yeah, two trail star photographer. You know? Sometimes it's but, an airplane, sometimes it's a helicopter. Exactly, yeah. Sometimes yeah. it's Venus. <laughs> right, right. Now, you got to get to a rural location, again, where you can see the stars. And I know people... I know people talk about stars as well as the auroras. Like, oh, you can't do it during a full moon. That's BS. You can. You know, yeah. just you obviously want to point away from that to the darker part of the sky. So if you can get to dark skies, and there's apps. There's a dark sky app. So find that. You know, the northeast is tough, but you can get a little upstate and, and find some stars. Um, so getting to that location is key. And then the fundamentals, a good camera, a wide lens, a wide and fast lens, whether it's a 24 to 70 2.8, you know, or a fixed wide lens, um, that sturdy tripod and a cable release. Now, this is one where I would say, hey, now's the time. If you want to stack stars, you want to get that, that cable release that comes with an intervalometer, okay? Because that's where you're going to program in some key features. Now, there's there's two ways to stack stars or to get star trails, so to speak, because A, stars start to trail, I would say, about after 30 seconds as a general rule of thumb. How far do you want to get them to trail? Those epic shots you see where the North Star and these great circles of stars, that's about an hour to an hour and a half. Okay, but the longest exposure isn't always the best exposure. Right. And, and, and you, we need to experiment and we need to look and assess the situation. So good stars trails, I think, start to happen really at about four or five minutes. And that four to five minute to 15 minute is, is really nice and realistic and still gives that wow factor. But again, if you want to get those epic ones, you got to you, you'll be committing to an hour, an hour and a half. And there's two ways to do it. 
Um, we haven't talked about it yet, but every camera has the function called long exposure noise reduction. Yeah, yeah. Okay, and now most of the times, this is defaulted on on most of our cameras. And um, I'll tell you to take that off right at the beginning. You know, that's something I go through my menu when I first get a camera and I turn that off because I don't need it. And I want to explore what the camera's capable of before I put sort of a lock on it, right? So long exposure noise reduction, you know, Todd talked about how noise comes from higher ISOs, but it also comes, again, from that processor heating up and, and, and how hot it is outside. We need to test our cameras and see what it is capable of. So oftentimes when I'm teaching a workshop, I'll have the students go to their hotel room and shoot just an interior, maybe include a table and do a test shot, you know, turn out all the lights in the hotel room and do an exposure for one minute, two minutes, four minutes, eight minutes, maybe go up to 10 or 15 minutes. And then you look at those images at 100% on the screen and see, look especially to the shadows because noise appears first in the shadows. And look at that and see when you start to see the noise. And what was the temperature in the room? Maybe you can turn it down to 68 or find out what the temperature is outside, try to match it. But that's sort of the best controlled way to kind of test your camera, see what's capable of. Again, knowing your camera, understanding the camera, the lens, even the tripod, what it's all capable of is going to make you a better prepared night photography outside. And the last thing you want to do is find out all these things at 1.30 in, in the morning. In the dark. In the dark, out in the middle of it. Yeah, with all kinds exactly. of weird, weird animals howling at you from the shadows. <laughs> now, there's two, there's two. I mean, you could just rip a long exposure. Just set it in bulb, put the thing, and do an hour. You know, and then for that, I would turn on the no long exposure noise reduction because almost every camera I've tested, unless it's 10 degrees outside, um, is going to have some noise from long exposure after about six minutes. That was my next question. At what yeah. point? So six minutes is your cutoff yeah, point Yeah, somewhere for between that. four and six minutes is a general rule of thumb for about 68 degrees, you know, um, on a new camera, something that's been released in the last one to two years. That's a general rule of thumb. Um, however, if you turn on your long exposure noise reduction, what that does is um, it'll lay down, again, it's called dark frame subtraction. It'll lay down a, a, a dark slide and sort of sandwich it on top, and that will eat up any noise that it finds and sees. The slight drawback, or there's two drawbacks to it, and that's why I often turn it off, is the first drawback is it takes time. And almost every camera... Um, it'll do be a one-to-one -one factor. And it really all depends on the buffer of the camera. And I, I know some of the Canon cameras, the 5D3, and um, especially I know had a better buffer, and the 1DX had a better buffer on it. Uh, but basically, if you do a five-minute exposure, it's going to do five minutes of long exposure noise reduction. And during that time, you can't do anything with your camera. You can't even look through the viewfinder. Okay, everything's on shutdown mode. We're focusing on this. And then when that's done, and it's draining battery, by the way, the whole time, you know, um, and when it's done, now you can take your next shot. It'll show it to you, and you can go on to your next shot. So for five minutes, you might be like, Gabe, that's not bad. I can stay productive. But for an hour-long exposure, you're going to be waiting an hour. Yeah, that's like put the camera in your bag and go to the Williamsburg bar. Well, yeah. <laughs> getting back to that, we got to know, we got to find out what the name of that bar is. But, but I might do that as my last shot of the night. What, go to the bar? <laughs> no, the last shot of the night, I might be like, hey, you know, I've done all these testing. I've done some other stacking. I've experimented with other things. I've, I'm, I got the energy to stay up for another hour, but I don't want to stay up for another two hours. So I might, for my last shot, be like, okay, I know it. I've done all my test shots. Do a long, turn on long exposure noise reduction 
take that shot and then let the camera keep cooking on the drive back home. So that's that's one key. The safer way and what most sort of quote unquote professional night photographers do is they do star stacking. Um, and and then what they'll do is they again know the parameters of the camera, know the temperature outside. They've tested their camera and they know that in these conditions, it's okay to get a five minute exposure before noise starts to creep in. Now, if I go back to that intervalometer that's plugged in, and if I go a one second, if I program it in, a one second break, which is the quickest break you can have between images. So I set it for one second. I set it to, to if I want to do an hour, so five goes into 60 12 times. So I set it up for one second break, 12 shots, each shot for five minutes. I press go, and the camera's going to do the, to do the job. It's going to collect that information. I bring it back home. It's not going to stack it together internally, I guess, unless you have the Olympus. But you'll now, you need Photoshop. But you take it in, you do your work on the image, you bring it into Photoshop, and you can stack it. There's a very easy ways to stack it in Photoshop. It's by combining the layers and going in lighten mode. And doing it's and it's a beautiful thing to see happen. It's like back in the dark room when you see the image come up. When you kind of take twelve images, or some people do it thirty second stacks because again it's hot out, so they might do thirty second stacks. So that'd be one hundred and twenty shots. So you better have a good computer <laughs> to process those files, especially if it's a high megapixel camera. But to then see it kind of pop up and stack up together, it's pretty magical and, and fun. And and that's and that's how you get it, and it'll be the cleanest star stacked. Uh, image out there so it's interesting how many things you see like going back to the dark room and yeah. you say the perfect yeah. temperature is 68 degrees right. have you noticed how mm. we're still back in the chemical dark room days <laughs> give me some d76 you keep throwing out things saying hmm, that sounds familiar i remember yeah. those times and temperatures one of the things about night photography is when you compare it to regular like daytime photography is it, it's a process it's not Hold, hold, hold the camera to your face and take the picture and then move on it's, it's like, not a click no it's not a click there's there's a there's a tripod involved. There's a cable release involved. There's a mm -hmm. exposure that takes several seconds at least, you know, and it's like, it's not instant point and shoot and go. It's, there's a process and that's, yep. and there's a, and that process extends to the computer sometimes, but it's definitely slow. Like Gabe said, you, your world slows down at night and you, the process slows down and it becomes photography. Well, there's two types, right? The ways we take pictures, we either capture or we create. And I think yeah. night photography opens up the creativity. Cool. Yeah. Thank you, Gabe, Todd, John, our producer, and sitting in for our engineer, Jason Tables, the inimitable Rob Reeves. Check out Gabe's night photo workshops, ruinism.com, and his recently created nationalparksatnight.com. And Todd's night photo work can be found at trvphoto.com. As for y'all at home, we want to see your pictures. Tweet us for your night photography at BH Photo Video, hashtag BH Photo Podcast. Also, if you have a few moments, rate our podcast on iTunes. My name is Alan Weitz. Thank you so much for tuning in. <laughs>